Hey y'all, it's Maggie here, and I am so excited to announce that today is the day the Obsessed Network is releasing their brand new podcast, Crimes of the Centuries, with Amber Hunt. And in case you didn't know, Amber is an amazing award-winning journalist, and she is the editor on Unjust and Unsolved. I could not do this without her. Each episode of Crimes of the Centuries will examine a case that is lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. The cases explored span the centuries, and each made a mark. Episodes one and two are available right now, and we are going to give you a sneak peek of the first episode right here. You can find Crimes of the Centuries wherever you get your podcasts. Please go and subscribe. Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. In 1913, Atlanta, Georgia was still struggling to recover from the Civil War some 50 years prior. You might remember from history class that the city had been seized and burned in 1864. After the war, the South had to spend more money on Reconstruction than the North did, and that meant it was good business for middle-class Northerners to move their businesses down South. They weren't exactly welcome, that's where the phrase carpetbagger comes from, but they were pretty successful. There were huge divides in the South between Yankees and Confederates, sure, but also between white people and black people and between the haves and have-nots. Little Mary Fagan's family was among the have-nots. Just consider that for a moment. She was a 13-year-old child laborer who did a repetitive task. She inserted rubber erasers into eraser tips at the National Pencil Company on Forsyth Street in downtown Atlanta. This is from a 2015 interview with Steve Oney, who wrote a book about the case. He noted that this was an era before federal child labor laws. Day after day, hour after hour, she earned pennies an hour. She had no hope of going to high school. Forget about college. One day, she went to fetch her paycheck. The next day, her face was splashed on newspapers under the headline, Girl Slain in Strangling Mystery. Mary was born in Alabama as the youngest of four children, the oldest was Benjamin, born in 1893. Then came Allie in 1894, followed by Charlie in 1896. Mary was born in 1899. The same year, her 25-year-old father died from what I can piece together from Find a Grave and Ancestry.com. Mary's mother remarried soon after and moved the family to Atlanta. April 26, 1913, promised to be an exciting day in Atlanta. 
A parade was planned to celebrate Confederate Memorial Day, which is different than the National Memorial Day most of us know. This one began after the Civil War in southern states to honor the Confederate war dead. Apparently it's still celebrated to this day in Alabama, Georgia, Florida, plus some other southern states. The Atlanta Constitution ran a brief that described the kind of fanfare expected. Quote, The members of Alan Turner Chapter UDC are planning an interesting and appropriate program to be carried out on Confederate Memorial Day. There will be included in the program one or two addresses for the occasion. The local chapter has been organized only a short time and there is much enthusiasm being manifested in its work here, as well as in the program for the 26th, end quote. Mary ate her usual breakfast of cabbage and bread and hopped on the streetcar to go to work so she could collect her pay. Her boss was a man named Leo Frank who was in his office when she arrived. He gave her the dollar twenty she was owed, and according to him, that's the last time he saw her. What happened next is, as with many murder cases, in dispute. What's known is what's printed in newspapers on April 28th. Mary Fagan's body was found by a night watchman around 3.30 in the morning in the pencil company's cellar. Mary, wrongly reported at first to be 15 years old, was filthy with a gaping wound in the back of her head, bruises and cuts all over her body, and some cloth knotted around her throat. Tied to the cloth was a short piece of rope, which police believed had been used to lower a body into the basement through a small hole in the floor above. Physicians were called to the scene, who declared it death by strangulation. There were two odd notes left at the scene that seemed to be scrawled on scrap paper. One of the notes read, Ma'am, that Negro hire down here did this. I went to make water, and he pushed me down that hole. A long, tall Negro black, that who it was. Long, slim, tall Negro. I write while play with me. That was Oni, the author, reading again. At first, it seemed feasible that the death note was written by Mary because the floor around her was littered with pencils that also seemed to have fallen from that small hole above. But Mary's stepfather said the handwriting didn't match. Mary wasn't a highly educated girl at 13, but she had attended some schooling, and this writing was too simplistic to be hers. Police immediately went about collecting clues. They realized the cloth around her neck was actually torn from her underclothing. They found a lead pipe near her body, which they thought might have been used to beat her. Police canvassed the area for witnesses and interviewed a night watchman who had been working in a nearby building. He said he'd heard a woman scream shortly after midnight, but because the day had been so raucous with the parade and partiers, he didn't investigate it. The worker who found Mary was a guy named Newt Lee. He, of course, was immediately suspected. He was a black man, or as the newspapers of the time preferred, Negro, 
which they seriously said on first reference as though his race remotely mattered in reporting that he found a dead girl. It would turn out that race would play a huge role in this case, though that's sort of a chicken-or-the-egg thing. Now, Newtley wasn't a dummy. He saw that note blaming the long, tall Negro and immediately realized he'd be under suspicion. He insisted he had nothing to do with Mary's death, though. He had just been doing his nightly rounds when he happened to see her in the dimly lit basement. Police arrested him under the blanket charge of suspicion, not a crime you hear invoked anymore. But they did seem to keep an open mind. Some witnesses told them that they spotted Mary around 12.30 in the morning, so three hours before her body was found, with a man named Arthur Mullinax. Though newspaper reports didn't see fit to specify his race, as they did with some others, I'll mention that he was white. He, too, was arrested on a charge of suspicion. The story of Mary's death was huge. Going through the archives, I see it reported in newspapers in Alabama, Tennessee, Louisiana, North Carolina, Kansas, Ohio, Indiana, New York. This was national news. The story of Mary Fagan. At age 10, she left school to work. At age 13, at her workplace, she was found dead. This is a young woman who had a very hard life, and and to be murdered in such a brutal way um, really captivated uh, the nation. There wasn't TV news coverage back then, but I'll use some more modern reporting throughout this episode to help tell the story. Even before any newspaper had produced an image of her with big, innocent eyes and a girlish bow in her hair, people were drawn to her tale. She was just so young, so undeserving of this kind of shocking violence. I mean, her big claim to fame so far in life was that she had earned raves playing Sleeping Beauty in a church performance the year before. She became something of a symbol, and the newspapers couldn't get enough. Here's Oni again. It didn't help that Atlanta was in the midst of a horrific newspaper war. There were three independent newspapers in Atlanta at the time, the Journal, the Constitution, and the Atlanta Georgian, which was owned by William Randolph Hearst. And the Hearst paper just went wild with the story. When police approached Leo Frank, Mary's boss is the superintendent of the pencil factory, he seemed really nervous. He was a small man, age 29, who happened to be Jewish. He lived with his wife, Lucille. Leo Frank was a quiet, rational, extremely well-educated mechanical engineer, graduated from Cornell University. He was one of those overachievers with lots of extracurricular interests, chess, photography, poker, tennis. Police didn't immediately read his nerves as guilt, but they noted it. They filed it away. Frank told them he had seen Mary only for that brief moment when she had requested her pay. He had no idea what happened after that, he said. He was a really dry guy, pretty analytical, and the nerves matched with the detachment. Well, police noted that too. Arthur Mullinax, one of the first suspects, 
was the streetcar driver who regularly drove Mary to work. He was 28 and supposedly a bit of a flirt. Mary was described as a bit mature for her age, but she was still 13, almost 14. Newt Lee, the man who had found her body, had no alibi because he in fact was at the factory doing his job. That means he was at the scene of the crime, but the notes found near Mary's body seemed at odds with Newt being guilty. I mean, it's one thing to report finding a body when you're the killer. It's another to leave notes actually implicating yourself as the killer. And who would do that? Police also looked at a friend of Mary's who had previously worked at the pencil factory with her. Around 6 p.m., Leo Frank had stepped out of the factory and run into James Milton Gant, called Jam, by people who knew him. Gant had first met Mary about 10 years prior when she was four years old. Her mother was still known as Mrs. Fagan rather than Mrs. Coleman. After Mary's dad died and her mother remarried, they moved away from the Marietta area where Gant had lived and into the city where Gant and Mary would reconnect as co-workers. Frank had reportedly fired Gant in early April because the payroll was short, a buck or two, and Gant worked as the paymaster. Considering Mary's entire pay for that week was $1.20, a couple of bucks was a significant amount of money for the company. It's tough to know if this description is true or if it was embellished with hindsight, but Newt Lee and Gant both told police that Frank seemed to jump back when he saw Gant, like he was nervous to see him. Gant, who was in his early 20s, asked to go into the building because he had left some shoes there and he wanted to get them back. Because of Gant's unexpected appearance at the plant that specific day, added with his known friendship with Mary, he was added to the suspect list and held not on a charge of suspicion this time, but on a charge of murder. Still, Leo Frank as a suspect was gaining traction. Thank you so much for listening. To hear the rest of episode one and episode two, please find Crimes of the Centuries wherever you get your podcast. Episode two investigates two teenagers from the jazz age, Leopold and Loeb, who thought they were smart enough to get away with murder. Crimes of the Centuries is available wherever you listen, so go subscribe.